0: All right, Psalm 102 is where we continue this evening in our study in Psalms together. Uh, Psalm 102, we're not certain, but it's very likely that the backdrop of this Psalm could have been written somewhere during what we refer to as the exile uh, that the children of Israel were in in the land of Babylon. If you remember, the southern kingdom of Judah, when they were conquered, ended up being taken into captivity. And according to God's promise, we're told that because of their neglect of some of the things that God had told them to do, not only their idolatry, but particularly because of their neglect of honoring the seventh year or the Sabbath year to let God's land, again, always remember it wasn't their land, it was God's land, which is why God can give it to them, which then indicates whoever God gives to something, he's the creator. God says the world is mine. Uh, Whoever God gives something to, that's who it belongs to. Uh, So ultimately, that land belongs to this day still to the Jewish people, not because there's something uniquely in and of themselves special about the Jewish people, but because God, in his sovereign determination, chose to allot it. the Jewish people. God chose to give the descendants of Abraham that land for his purposes and for his reasons. They are his chosen people through which he's fulfilling and will continue to fulfill his purposes through. But if you remember, because the land belonged to God when they didn't honor what God asked them to do over a span of 490 years, every seventh year, they were supposed to let that land rest. But because of their, it seems perhaps maybe greed to try and get more for themselves and perhaps maybe if it wasn't greed maybe for others it was unbelief thinking if they don't work in that seventh year how will we provide how will we take care of ourselves and both in and of themselves are wrong unbelief and not trusting God to provide when you do things God's way and handle things and manage things God's way as well as greed, thinking that you have to strive or you want to strive to get more greedily than what you really need. Either way, they didn't let the land rest. And so God basically, on top of their idolatry, said, okay, uh, you owe me 70 years that you took away from me, that you stole from me. So God said, for 70 years... You will be conquered, and, and they stood in Babylon for that 70-year period. Not only has God worked and orchestrated discipline in their lives, but it was ultimately that the land might have its Sabbath rests that the people had really just disregarded. But again, God promised to them that there was a set period to this discipline. It wasn't prolonged, it wasn't going to last forever, and just like any good parent, you know, you don't perpetually punish your child forever. You may be tempted to do that sometimes, uh, maybe when they misbehave, but usually you set a limit to that punishment or discipline. And so again, this was a disciplinary thing that God brought upon them, and he promised them at the end of those 70 years that they would be returned to the land. The land itself was conquered, the, the city of Jerusalem, the walls were leveled, the gates were burned with fire, it was left in rubble, many of the poor were left in the land, many others were taken away into captivity. And so we believe, it seems as we read this psalm, some of what's described, that the time of this exile could be where the psalmist, kind of as a backdrop, is saying some of these things from regretting some of the sufferings of the hardship of sin that he was enduring and they were enduring as a people and kind of, if you would, awaiting this promised opportunity. You'll notice there's kind of this sense of hopefulness amidst the hardship that there is coming is going to say a set time, God, when your favor will return and and you're going to restore us back to the land and you're going to rebuild Zion. You're going to restore Jerusalem. And so there seems to be this kind of awaiting of this promised opportunity to be restored back to the land and to see it rebuilt and restored in God's timetable. So notice the Psalm begins at the beginning of it. Sometimes we get a little prescript to tell us something of the backdrop here. We're particularly told that this is a prayer of the afflicted, so any time we are afflicted, whether it's physical affliction or circumstantial hardships we go through, uh, we can all to some degree relate. The psalmist is praying these things out of affliction. Uh, And the Bible says in James, is any among, among you suffering? Let him pray. So the Bible tells us that one of the key things we should do when we suffer is pray, is seek God. Uh, look to the Lord in dependency to help us with the affliction, the suffering, the hardship. And many a times, I think sometimes those become the greatest occasions, though we may not enjoy affliction when maybe our world kind of slows down a little bit in different ways, affliction comes into our lives or hardship. But many a times, those are times when we're awakened a little bit more in compassion and sensitivity, right? Because as we're suffering, we start realizing, oh, Lord, this person's suffering too. And, and it's amazing how all of a sudden instead of rushing and ramming and doing this and that, all of a sudden, whether we're laying in our sickbed or we're going through a time of hardship and we're kind of just slowed down and disconnected, that all of a sudden those can be times where a lot of wonderful prayer ministry can take place. And we can begin to seek the Lord and pray for others with compassion and and use and redeem that time in a very wonderful way. So this psalmist here, we're told, is praying this prayer as a prayer of the afflicted when he was, notice, overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So he's suffering affliction. He's feeling overwhelmed. I'm sure you can't relate to any of these things yet, but just try And when you're going through these things, now you know, hey, i got to turn to Psalm 102. i got to turn there. I I can relate to that. My spirit can resonate, uh, and and those are things that I can glean and maybe even use this as a, a prayer of your own to jumpstart yourself as you start praying your own sincere prayer in the midst of your affliction or when you're feeling overwhelmed. And, you know, sometimes we do feel like that. The psalmist says in other places, when my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to that place that's higher than I. Lord, take me to that place higher than myself when I feel overwhelmed. So the psalmist begins by crying out, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my, notice, cry come before you. Now, that's very fitting because prayer is a term that just generally speaks of communication with God. It's a term that speaks of, again, remember, not monologue, but dialogue. And whenever we talk about prayer, it's important to understand. Sometimes we we, we get a little bit off track with that. Uh, Nobody likes being in a relationship really where one person does all the talking and the other person does all the listening and you never get a chance to interject or say something back or they don't ever listen. All they do is talk, talk, talk. But a lot of times we can become very guilty of that as God's children, right? And nothing wrong with telling God what's on our heart and praising him and pleading with him. And he wants us to bring our concerns before him and ask him for things. We're invited to do that. But good that we always remember that prayer is a dialogue, which means a two-way conversation where each party does their own share of talking and listening. There's an area where sometimes as Christians probably we need to grow in a little bit. Sometimes it's the area of learning how to listen in prayer talk to God, but sometimes just be quiet, be listening for the still small voice of the Lord, an impression he may put upon your heart or something he may prompt in your mind, a scripture he may bring. And I think whether it's in our private time alone with God or praying with others, certainly we want to remember prayer is that dialogue, not just us always talking to God. And you can tell that the, the, the hardship he's in and that he is overwhelmed because he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, please God, listen, But then notice the next statement, he changes his word, let my cry come before you. And then that's how you can tell there's intensity. Prayer is talking to God, communicating with God. Here he says, my cry, Lord. You know, the idea is here, intensity, deep concern. You know, Paul speaks about this in the New Testament when he's in 2 Corinthians 12, and he talks about there the thorn in his flesh. Remember, Paul himself was afflicted he said with a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan on top of that that was buffeting and beating him up. And, and he, he uses the term, and I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might take it away from me. He doesn't say I prayed, could have said that, but Paul says I pleaded in the affliction when I felt overwhelmed. There was a time when sometimes Paul says uh, it, it got ratcheted up a few notches where I started begging God, pleading with God and crying out, and hear the psalmist, he's overwhelmed, he's afflicted. He says, Let my cry come before you. And then you can sense him begging God. Verse 2 Do not hide your face from me. Lord, please don't turn away. He says, If you turn away your face, there's no other hope, Lord. Looking to you and looking into your face is the only thing that gives me hope in my hardship. And when I'm overwhelmed and afflicted, notice he calls his time in the day of my trouble. I think we can all relate to that sometimes when we're in the day of my trouble. This is, this is the day of my trouble. And so he says, Lord, please keep your face turned toward me. And in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Lord, I, don't, I, I need your help quickly. I'm asking, Lord, do not delay. And of course, I think we all in our intensity, that's our prayer. Lord, you know, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, Lord. And, and, and so the psalmist, Lord, please. Answer and answer quickly, oh God, this is a hard time. I'm overwhelmed. And then he begins to describe what he's experiencing, even in his own physical and mental and emotional hardship. Look what he says, verse three through seven. He says, for my days are consumed like smoke. Now, smoke is something that passes very quickly it's something that oftentimes uh, is something, let's be candid, that's very irritating, right? If you're not a smoker and someone around you smokes near you, it's irritating. It's bothersome. It's something that makes you want to choke or gag. And so, never a pleasant thing. And so, he says, Lord, my days, I feel like my days are consumed like smoke. Like, you know, just like I'm always around a smoldering, burning fire and I'm just, you know, dealing with the smoke of it. It's like the days are just. You know, kind of burning up all around me, and my bones, he says, are burned like a hearth. So the idea there is, you know, like the destructiveness of fire, something being set on a hearth and being burned. He says, again, so whether he's speaking of physical fever within or that kind of affliction, or just using an analogy here for Lord, my inward person, I just I feel like that everything in my life is just being burned up, like everything is going up in smoke, God. Right? And and we can understand. Lord, I just feel like everything is just getting burnt and going up in smoke every day, day after day, Lord. This is just so hard. He says, verse 4 My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so like brown grass that's just withering and dying. He says, Lord, I feel like my heart is just dying within. I feel like I'm losing heart and I'm just withering up with hopefulness on the inside. So that I forget. To eat my bread, because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. A picture there of being sort of emaciated, losing weight, where the skin's just clinging to the bones. So, again, he's going through such a hard time in the affliction he's dealing with personally, feeling completely just overwhelmed and consumed by the problem and hardship he's enduring He says literally it was affecting him as well in such a way where he was completely losing his appetite and he was beginning to actually lose weight. Right. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes people can get so overwhelmed with hardship and under such a major trial that they just start losing their appetite. They don't even want to eat or they don't think about eating. One of the biggest things a lot of times we have to remind people, right? When a family's going through a hardship, uh, someone in a hospital or death, we have to remind them to take care of yourself. You got to you know, keep eating just because that, that's what happens. You know, They just begin to lose their appetite. They begin to struggle in those ways. And then verse 6, if that were enough, he says, and I am like a pelican of the wilderness. Now, pelicans usually weren't in the wilderness. That is an animal. That is somewhere where it's not supposed to be. It's out of place. It's out in the wilderness instead of in its proper uh, environment. I'm like an owl of the desert. Typically, owls were in the wooded areas, but they weren't out in the desert. He says, I lie awake. In other words, I can't sleep. I'm losing sleep now, so I lost my appetite. I'm overwhelmed. I feel horrible. Now I can't sleep I'm struggling with insomnia. I'm so anxious and restless. I can't even get sleep. I lie awake and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. Sparrows typically were communal birds. They were typically together. So to see a sparrow alone by itself, lonely, again, was an unusual thing. So he's describing here just more of this experience. He says, I'm going through a time of loneliness. I feel so alone. I'm isolated. I don't have around me the people to be supporting me and helping me. So not only is he struggling in affliction and feeling overwhelmed, he's lost his appetite, he's losing weight. And then on top of it, he says, and I'm completely isolated. I'm isolated. I'm all alone. And I'm dealing with loneliness and the struggles of isolation. And then if that weren't bad enough, verse 80 says, and then my enemies reproach me all day long. Again, Perhaps, again, as he's thinking about if they are there in the exile, just the mockery of the Babylonians, mocking them for the failure of their God to take care of them, and mocking them that now they're their prisoners, and, and just you know, tormenting them because of maybe the mistakes of their past, and now here they are in exile suffering the consequences of their own sin and mistakes from their past. And again, you know, often we, you know, I think sometimes can almost undervalue the, you know, the the painfulness of of words and people mocking us and saying hurtful and critical things. And even as God's people, sometimes we almost kind of want to brush off as if somehow it doesn't have an impact upon us. We know we're going to be persecuted. We know at times we're going to be mocked or reproached, uh, but, but that can really have an effect upon people and can really bring a, a discouragement to their heart. He says, they're deriding me. He says, they're swearing against me. For I have eaten, he says, verse 9, ashes like bread, and mingled my drink with weeping. So he says, as I'm eating and drinking, I'm mourning. It seems maybe he was putting ashes on his head as a way of you know, repentance and grieving over what he's going through, a common thing the Jews would often do in that Mid-Eastern culture. And he says, my, even my, my drink and my, my, my food, he says, just the ashes and the tears are running down into it. Now, verse 10, he makes this comment. He says, because, now notice, of your indignation or your anger. The idea is, Lord, that you are upset in your wrath. For you have lifted me up and then cast me away. Lord, he says, <laughs> almost the picture there is like, Lord, I feel like you've picked me up and just tossed me aside. Lord, like you've just, you know, you, you brought me to something wonderful, but then you took it all away from me. And that's kind of the picture here. Lord, you lifted me up, but now, but now it's like you've just, like everything's changed. It's like you've just cast me away now. And my days, he says, verse 11, they're like a shadow that lengthens. And I wither away. This is his final comment, kind of about what he's dealing with. I feel like my life is withering away like grass. Lord, I just, I just feel like the the... The, the value, the quality of my life, he says, I just feel like my life is just withering away. Like it's just failing and, and falling apart altogether like weak, frail grass that is just withering away and dying up like a brown lawn. He says, just, you know, and notice he seems to indicate verse 10 that he recognizes to some degree that perhaps some of what he was dealing with in the affliction and the hardship that to some degree, maybe he sensed some of it was connected to his own sin and wrongdoing. Because he does mention in verse 10, Lord, it's because of your indignation and your wrath that I'm dealing with some of these things. Some of this is the repercussions, some of the consequences that have come upon us as the people of Judah here in the land of Babylon. Some of this is our... Our time of suffering until we get to the other side of the discipline and can begin to be experience the, the promise and the hope and the future on the other side of these consequences for our sin. And you know, sometimes I think we all know that there are times when we're suffering or struggling and, and there is just a very clear awareness. Some of what I'm suffering right now, I brought upon myself. Uh, this is the result of some bad choices or some sinful actions. And and I think sometimes we, we recognize that, that we're under the chastening hand of the Lord. And, and maybe that's why we're going through that. And Hebrews 12 tells us simply don't despise the chastening of the Lord, not to be discouraged, but to kind of just yield into it. Don't, don't begin to feel hopeless. Yes, it may be hard. Yes, it may be painful. He says, nope. You know, chastening seems pleasant for the moment, but painful, but it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it and just yielding to it, realizing it's not going to last forever, but let that consequential pain serve its purpose. So whether he genuinely knew that, and that's what he's indicating, or maybe on the other side of that, maybe he just sensed or felt like God was upset with him, and sometimes that happens. When we go through an affliction or a hardship or difficult things come into our lives, sometimes we just presume, Lord, you must be upset with me. Lord, you must be, God must be angry at me. Why would I be going through this hardship? Why would I be suffering unless God was upset or angry? And so it could have just been maybe that he sensed that. Uh, We can't be certain. Now, I want you to notice the shift as he comes to verse 12, because verses 1 through 11, you notice the tone is what? Lord, my, I, my, I, my, I. In other words, the first 11 verses, he's pouring out his cry before the Lord and everything is about what he's experiencing, how he feels, and he's just pouring out his hardship and his pain and suffering before God as God is listening. But the beautiful thing is it's almost as if on the other side of the thunderstorm, the other side of the storm cloud, just like when you have a bad storm, then you know. Just like you, a lot of times there's that calm after the storm. The bright sun comes back out. The sun rises the next day. And notice now when he comes to verse 12, he says, but you, O Lord. In other words, yes, he was focusing for a brief time. There was a appropriate thing to say, I'm going through this. Lord, my problems are that and so on and so forth. But he didn't perpetually remain focused upon himself. He didn't stay laser focused, zoomed in, become self-consumed with just his problems, with just the pain and the whole focus being upon this problem and this painful thing in my life. This and, and because that can almost very quickly get into an unhealthy preoccupation with our own pain and our own problems and our own hardship and can really just make us get more overwhelmed. Because then we hyperfixate fixate in preoccupation and then self-pity sets in and then the problem just gets bigger in our eyes and bigger in our eyes and bigger in our head and all of those things then mentally and emotionally and spiritually and even physically, right? Stress, stress, stress. I mean, you, you can make yourself sick with just stress and it just compounds and gets worse. So, yes, he poured out his complaint, but then he said, you know what? Shift focus, I need to focus on God now. I need to get my eyes on the one who can help me with my problems and who can give me what I need in the midst of this. So he says, but you, Lord, my days, uh, they're withering away and I'm in a lot of pain and hardship, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. So notice, he speaks of the brevity of his life withering away like grass, but in contrast, he says, Lord, you're everything opposite of what I am. You're strong, stable. You endure forever. Lord, you're never going to be taken off your throne. N- nothing will ever make you weaken or wither away in who you are. He says, You remain to all generations your greatness in comparison to my insignificance and my weakness. And a lot of times, you know, that's, that's a great consolation. Aren't you so thankful that our being sustained, our survival, the promises of God are not dependent upon our condition? They're dependent upon what? God's character. That's what they're rooted in. And this is what the psalm, Lord, yeah, I may be withering away, but Lord, you're going to endure forever. And, and, and you're strong to all generations. And he says, verse 13, and you will arise. I like that. Lord, you will arise. You'll come to my aid. You're not going to sit there like a a, a person who's ignoring your child. Lord, you will arise. I believe it. And have mercy upon Zion, upon Jerusalem, or you're going to have mercy upon us. Notice verse 13 for the, the time to favor her. Yes. The set time has come. so, Again, as he talks about here, a time of favor and the set time coming, he could be referring to that time of favor, the end of the 70-year captivity, and the set time when God promised that he would restore them back to the land. And the psalmist knew that. So he said, Lord, there is a set time when there's going to come a paradigm shift, and you're going to restore us, and you're going to put everything back together. And, Lord, I believe that time of favor is, is coming for your people. I believe the set time has now come. And so with expectancy, he's, he's writing these things, believing the opportunities about to come to pass to be restored to the land. Or this could be a reference to perhaps even something just further out as the spirit of God's writing through the psalmist of that time of the favor of God and the set time when ultimately Israel was in 1948 restored to the land. And yet there are still promises and things God has in store, a set time, When God will again, the Bible speaks of the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period of the tribulation, when God will again complete one final seven-year period with the nation of Israel, God will begin to do unique things among them, and there's a time of favor and a set time that God has for other things even way further out in the prophetic scope to the end times. Now, the thing that's encouraging for us is to realize that though in the same way this was true for them, I believe that there are times when in a personal way, in a unique way, there comes a time of the favor of the Lord. There are set times that God has to do certain things in our lives. And and what a wonderful thing for us to be sensitive to the timetable of the Lord and to realize, Lord, the set time has come. This is the set time now, Lord. This is the time your favor is going to be poured out. Lord, this, I've been waiting, but Lord, this, this is the time that you've set. This is the set time now. The time has come. And Lord, your favor will be attached to that because it's, when it's God's appointment time, the favor of God will be upon it. And I think sometimes we, uh, to a personal degree, can take this and apply it to our own lives. He says, verse 14, for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust, so that the nation shall fear the name of the Lord. So again, Lord, your servants take pleasure in her stones, referring to Zion or Jerusalem, the the, the broken down stones. The city was in rubble, but yet in the spirit of optimism and faith and confidence, the, the psalmist is saying these things, Lord, your, your servants, we take pleasure in those stones and rubble, because Lord, the nation shall fear the name of the Lord, the kings of the earth, your glory, verse 16, for you shall build up Zion. Lord, it may look like a mess. It may be all destroyed and ravaged and ruined and the stones may be in rubble, but Lord, you're the one who's gonna rebuild Zion. Lord, you're going to build it. And you know, it doesn't matter what the building materials are if God's the one doing the building, right? It could be a bunch of, rubble and construction debris, as the city was. But the psalmist said, Lord, my confidence is this. You're going to build the city. You're the one that's going to do the building. You shall build up the city, for he shall appear in his glory. It would be for the glory of the Lord, because the Lord would be the one doing it. And verse 17, he says, for he, God, shall regard the prayer of the destitute. Those who are destitute have absolutely nothing. We're empty-handed. When you're destitute, you are beyond poverty, the idea is. You know, just completely destitute. But he says, Lord, even though we're destitute, you don't despise the prayer of the destitute. In other words, what a wonderful thing that God doesn't respond according to what we can bring to the table. It's not like God in a negotiation says, well, what are you bringing in on the deal here? Yes, we need to work in that situation, or yes, but are you bringing something to the deal? I mean, are you— and and. God says you can come completely empty-handed. In fact, God says you can come destitute. You can have absolutely nothing. I think God almost likes when we come in that condition, completely destitute, like beggars saying, Lord, I have nothing to bring to the table except faith. Lord, I just believe that you regard the prayer of the destitute. And and here the psalmist, just in this... Confidence. I mean, the city was a mess. They weren't restored back, but he believed, Lord, you're going to regard the prayer of the destitute. And ultimately, God did move on the heart of Cyrus, we know, and let them be returned to the land. Verse 18, he even says, and even if it doesn't happen, this is the sense here, even if it doesn't happen with me, look what he says, this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So the psalmist says, I'm going to write these things either way. Cause even if I don't see it in my generation, then he says, they'll see it in the next generation. I believe it. And I like this here. This is going to be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created. God knows people even before they're created. Oh, when, when, when does life become viable life? Is it this? God says, even before it's created, God knows people's existence. Even before they're created, the Holy Spirit speaks up here for a people yet to be created. Conception hadn't even happened yet, yet to be created that they can praise the Lord. That's how much God values every life. And what's God's goal for every life? Ultimately, to praise the Lord, to honor God as their creator, to give glory to him. And he says, I'm looking for that next generation to be raised up that they may praise the Lord. Well, that should give us a heart to want to see life protected and to care about generations to come, that we would want to pass on to them our faith and even you know records and things, you know written things and just valuable things to help the next generation to praise the Lord, even as we do in our current generation. For verse 19, he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven, the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, and they felt like prisoners there in the land, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, to be there in Jerusalem again, and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together, as they would once again, and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Now, certainly, verse 22 speaks not only of what would happen in the days when they came back after the exile, but that clearly speaks of what's going to happen all the way down into the time of the kingdom age, a time when Isaiah 2 and 60 and other places tell us when all peoples from all nations and kingdoms will assemble in Jerusalem to serve the Lord when Jesus is reigning there as king. So, certainly, even beyond the present. The psalmist was seeing things further out that will one day come to pass. Now, verse 23, he declares, he weakened me in my strength in the way he shortened my days. Now, interesting here that the psalmist acknowledges in personal humility, verse 23, he says, God weakened my strength in the way that I was going and, and, and shortened my shortened." my days. It's almost as if the psalmist somehow sensed or discerned, Lord, maybe you thought I was a little bit too strong in myself. Lord, maybe to some degree you saw my own strength and kind of stubborn or self sufficient spirit or or my persistence and who I was. And, my per- and so, Lord, you weakened my strength. You know, isn't it amazing that God in his love, whether it's a part of our You know, disciplinary correction, maybe if our pride needs to be broken in some way and God kind of, you know, has to break our our strong, stubborn spirit of us and kind of weaken us a little bit to show us a little bit more of our human frailty or to kind of take a little wind out of our sails. Or whether it's just, you know, not necessarily maybe a disciplinary action, but sometimes just for our own benefit, sometimes God will allow things to come into our lives to weaken us to a degree and and to be in a place where we're experiencing human weakness through what we're experiencing a hardship a you know an illness a setback a difficulty a trial something we're going through where we're having a hard time and he says he weakened my strength and and he, and he shortened my days but see when god does that it's never in any way to be Harmful to us because the Bible tells us in plenty of places, like Isaiah 40, that God gives power to the weak. And God says, To those who have no might, I increase strength. Paul, when he spoke about his own thorn in the flesh, right, from a New Testament example, he pleaded with the Lord, Take it away from me, take it away from me. And Jesus said, My grace will be sufficient for you. In other words, my grace will be enough in the midst of your pain and your weakness and this hardship that I'm not going to remove for this period of your life right now. And he says, you're going to experience measures of my grace. And Paul ultimately said, remember, he said, therefore, I will boast in my infirmities and my persecutions and my difficulties and hardships. And he says, for I've learned that when I am weak, that's actually when I'm strong. And so sometimes, again, does this resonate with our logical mind. Lord, why wouldn't you make me make me strong? I want to be like a Superman. I want to I want to be, you know, like like a Christian version of Rambo Lambo. I want to charge the world and i want to bulldoze everybody down. And the reality is, is what we tend to forget sometimes is sometimes in our human strength. What we can begin to do, even unconsciously, is we start to quench the Holy Spirit. Because we're living in our human spirit. And our indomitable human spirit, a lot of times, it's a wonderful thing, and it can be a wonderful thing, but sometimes God in his loving wisdom, if he sees it as beneficial, may weaken us in our strength and our way so that he can empower us with his supernatural strength in his way that we can experience the betterment for our lives. So here the psalmist, he says, Lord, you weakened me. It seemed like you were short in my days. Lord, it seemed like that maybe I wasn't going to make it, he says. But notice, out of this, what did he do? He prayed. Isn't that what happens when God weakens us? Well, all of a sudden, we start praying like crazy when we're in chaos or catastrophe or critical. That, it's amazing how that has a way to jumpstart all of our prayer lives. We all can acknowledge and resonate with that. He, he said, in in that moment, I said, oh, my God. Do not take me away in the midst of my days, Lord. I feel like maybe you're shortening my days. Please, Lord. Lord, please, he says, have mercy. Don't take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations of old, he says. You have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end and the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. So notice what's he doing here again? He's contrasting, comparing or contrasting, however you want to see it. Human weakness and frailty with the power and the awesomeness of God. And, and this is the wonderful trade-off, that we can accept our human weakness and our frailty. In fact, we do good to humbly recognize that. The psalmist is going to say in Psalm 103, he's going to say, Lord, you remember my frame, that it's, it's just dust. A lot of times the problem is, we forget that we're just dust. <laughs> We think we're something more than that. And God's not, I know what you are. You're just, yeah, you're just dust. And so here the psalmist says, Lord, I am so weak, so frail. But he says, Lord, the thing that's wonderful about that is he says, in contrast, Lord, your years are through all generations. Lord, I feel like you may be shortening my days, but Lord, it's the exact opposite. You're going to endure forever. Your days have no end. He says, verse 25, in fact, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's acknowledging God as creator. Lord, Lord, I I can't do much of anything. I feel completely weak and incapacitated. I I feel so limited right now. Lord, I feel so helpless. But Lord, you have so much strength. You created everything. You're the exact opposite. You created the heavens and the earth, he says. You're creator God. These things are the work of your hands, even the heavens. And he says, in fact, even the heavens and the earth, all the glory of creation, right? The universe. So not just this ball of dirt we live on, but the heavens in the Bible often has referred to in three different ways. You have the the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, and then the eternal heavens. So he's encompassing here everything from the ball of dirt we live on called earth to all technically the universe, the solar system, the stars. And he says, Lord, you created all these things, which seem so powerful and amazing and immovable, right? But then he says, but even those things, they're going to perish too. They're not even going to last forever. Even all these physical things of creation, they're going to perish. But God, though those things are going to perish that you created, you're going to endure, he says, because you're the creator. God, you were around before you created everything, and God, you're going to outlast everything physical that you created. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation there's a new heaven and new earth that will one day be coming. And so here, notice what he says in verse 26. Again, he says, they will grow old like a garment. Again, the idea is there's an expiration date on all this physical creation stuff. Which really is a good reminder when we find ourselves way too inclined to want to worship and save the earth. We're trying to save something that's got an expiration date. He says, one day, it's, Lord, it's all going to grow old. It's going to expire. It has a set time. And like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them and they will be changed. One day God's going to, like changing clothes, he's going to, okay, I'm done with that. I'm done with creation. And just begin to recreate everything brand new once again, this miraculous creative work of God by his power. But notice verse 27 and 28, what he kind of drops into as he concludes. He says, but Lord, you are the same and your years will have no end. In other words, Lord, even creation, awesome as it is, that's all going to someday fail and you're going to get rid of it. But he says, Lord, you are the same and your years will have no end. In other words, Lord, you're immutable and you're eternal. Lord, you're immutable and you're eternal. You're going to last forever beyond what you created and recreate your eternal existence for us. And I love verse 27, that he sees this reality that even though creation itself is going to one day be changed, he says, the thing I love, Lord, is that you are the same. I have that underlined there in my Bible. You are the same. We call that God's immutability. Malachi says you, you are the God who changes not. The New Testament says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a wonderful thing in a constantly changing world, right? Whether there's any credence at all to you know, the global warming and the world changing and, and atmospheres change, whether there's any credence to that, everything else is constantly changing, changing, changing. You know, we rotate governments, we rotate politicians, we change policies every other breath on everything. Everybody just makes up their own rules. We live in a day more now than ever that everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And I'm right, and then if you don't agree with me, then I'll just cancel you. We can't even have honest dialogue anymore. It's not acceptable. Can't disagree. We'll agree to agree that I'm right, and I'm canceling you if you think differently. That's the word— just constant change here's the good news god's never changed he's never gonna change he says lord you're the same you're the constancy so lord everything that's been your will it will always be your will no matter what anybody says or no matter what they try and change policy wise or legality you're the same And that's the confidence that we have to walk in that, you know, the world is going crazy and it's going to be falling apart. But, Lord, you're the same. Thank you that every morning I get up, you're always the same. God never has a bad day. He's never in a bad mood. You're never going to upset him and then he's not going to talk to you for the next three hours like your spouse or somebody else. He's not going to do that. Right? I mean, we're we're such fickle, constant, but God's never like that. He's always the same. Always the same, reliable, consistent, and we can depend upon him. He's the immutable God. And so that gives us great confidence so that as we read the scriptures, that should what inspire us as we live out our lives spiritually to say, Lord, these things that I read that you did in your word, the power you showed in that situation, Lord, you're the same. So I will pray and ask with confidence because you are the same. You haven't changed God or Lord, the time when you showed such love to intervene in that situation, or you provided, or you did this marvelous thing, Lord, you are the same. Your heart towards things is the same. You want to do the same things. And this is what inspires us to have confidence that he's the immutable one and the eternal one. And we approach him in that manner. So the only things that really do last are what God, because he's eternal. And then what? Look at verse 28. People, people. He says, the children of your servants will also continue and their descendants will be established before you. The only two things that exist that are eternal is God and human beings. That really simplifies life to a great degree. So that as we're trying to evaluate, make decisions, prioritize our life, should I do this or that? Should I put my effort into this or that? Or we're just... The only two things that last forever is God and people. So to the degree you invest in those things, you are investing in something that's of value, of eternal benefit, and that will benefit you for all of eternity. Because everything else...